Last week we were going through Matthew chapter 6. And it says, uh, forgiving others is God. It, not, uh, uh, it says, forgive us our trespasses as we need to forgive the debts of others. And that's what it says in Matthew chapter 6. And, and I know that forgiveness is one of those things that we all have trouble with. No, you do. Because somebody does something to you and you don't like it and you don't know whether you really want to give them forgiveness. You don't feel like it. Uh, there are other issues as well that it may be something from a long time ago. Now that you've become a Christian, you realize that there may need to be some forgiveness from a long time ago. Some of those folks may not even be on this earth anymore. So how do you, how do, you do that? How do you handle all of that? So our Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's what we're supposed to do. So I thought it would be appropriate to just give one week because to dive into that next passage that Tom was speaking of, that's going to take a couple of weeks as well. And, and Carl won't let me sit in this pulpit any longer. He said he'd take me down. No, he didn't. Something that has very practical implications. Very practical implications. Because we do this all the time, or we're supposed to be doing this all the time. And so I want to start off with what our greatest need is. Anybody know what our greatest need is? Salvation, the forgiveness of sins. So forgiveness starts right there. Forgiveness starts right there. If you, if you don't have that forgiveness of sins first, it, it, the rest of it doesn't really matter. You need his forgiveness first. So we're going to start there. You see in Ephesians 2, 1, it says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And we have no way around that. We're dead. Not just mostly dead. You're dead all the way. When you're an un- you don't know Jesus Christ. I don't care how much Bible you know. Etta Lineman, who is a great, and, and she was, uh, New Testament theologian, or at least translator, wrote lots of books. And when I was in seminary, Dr. Bob Thomas, who's now with the Lord, said when she came to Christ after many years of doing that, she said, burn all my books. Because I did that as an unsaved, unforgiven sinner. And now that I know Christ, that's different. So just realize there's a big difference here. How do you get saved? We all know that. It's by a gift. God gives you the gift of faith. It's by his grace. You see that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I'm not going to go through those. So we see this is how we get it. And and the only way to get that is to humbly come to that point in your life where you realize that you are spiritually bankrupt and you need forgiveness of sins. You, you, You cry out to God, God, do something. I need to change. I, I don't even know. I, and I can still go back to that time in Montreal, Canada, when I was in a hotel room. I said, God, I don't even know what's next. But you do whatever you need to do. I knew there was something that was needful at that point, reading his scriptures. But in Romans 5, and we had some of this on the slides there, but Romans five seventeen says this, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, that means Adam, he sinned, okay, in the beginning, 
Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, that is Jesus Christ. The the one Adam who was sent couldn't live that perfect life. It was impossible, but Jesus did. He came and he lived that perfect life. But we still have to go to him. Verse 19, for as though the one man's disobedience, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. When you get saved, when you reach out to God and you cry in your heart, save me, I am a wretched sinner, he makes you righteous. You know, you look around, it doesn't look very righteous because you can see where your life is sometimes. Turn with me, and I want you to do that, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, this is all preliminary, this is the... um, introduction, so to speak, of trying to get to the idea of what forgiveness is. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, notice you have to be in Christ. He is a new creature. The old things have passed, the new things have come. Now, all these things were from God and reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You see, forgiveness has a caboose to it. I'm going to put it in a train sort of an analogy, and that caboose means reconciliation. That that means with forgiveness is going to be some kind of reconciliation. What all of that looks like may be different in each situation, and we're going to go through that. But there needs to be some kind of reconciliation, and I know from your questions you still have some very important questions about this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, is verse 20. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You need to be reconciled to God. See, I just don't ask God for forgiveness. He gives it to me and I go do whatever I want to do. I have a new relationship with him. You see, now I've become a slave. I do what he tells me to do. I read his book and I I have to do what he tells me to do. Walk the worthy walk that we've been hearing from our own pastor. That's what we have to do. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that's Jesus, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Praise God that he did that. Praise God that he did that. So forgiveness has as a caboose, so to speak, is the idea of reconciliation. But what does it mean? I mean, for some of you, you, you may not even know that. For some of the others, you know, you know the exact uh, Greek word it is and all of those kinds of things. But the word repent actually means to change direction. In Montreal, Canada, I was going in one direction. I had a God when I was there. It was a small G God, but it was treasures, money on this earth. That's all I cared about. As a salesman, that's all. The more I, the more I worked, the more I made. I just kept, that's what kept happening. I was my small G God, but then all of a sudden this big G came along. And he says, no, no, you can still work. You should still work. Don't give up your work. But that's not the most important thing. 
It's not the most important thing. So you're going in one direction. You have a 180 degree turn. You, you, you change completely. Now, when somebody says they got saved, yet they still participate heavily. I wonder, are they really saved? Do they know it? I mean, we've been hearing reports about the Southern Baptist uh, denomination. They said it's the largest denomination of unsaved people. What? I wouldn't be proud of that. But that's what they say. There's a turning from sin. And when you turn from that sin, you embrace Jesus Christ. You begin to deal with your sin. You mortify those things. There's a a great book by John Owen. You could read the big one or you could read the small one. But either one, they're both good for you. Okay? Mortifying your sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 13. There is an exercise by us of some degree of turning from these fleshly deeds. In Romans 8, 13, it says, For if living according to the flesh, you must die. You see, my flesh and the spirit are in battle with one another. Galatians 5, 16, 17. They're always in battle with one another. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. You see, if the Spirit is controlling me, it should be putting those deeds of the flesh to death. That's what's supposed to be happening. So when I come to faith in Jesus Christ and I I repent of my sin, I do something about it. I don't continue to participate in it anymore. And then there's another verse that I'd like you to keep in mind. And this is one where you are exercising. You know, some of you do exercise. Some of you don't exercise. (laughs) But for exercise, you know what it is to get in the gym. uh, To lift up that weight. Okay? Or to walk on the treadmill or to get on a bicycle. All of those kinds of things that are there. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I love this, where Timothy, we're going to skip the first part of uh, verse 7, 1 Timothy 4, 7, is um, not for us. But on the other hand, he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You need to be disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. You sin in a particular way, you need to come up with a plan of what I do instead of that. What do I do instead of that? It's it's an exercise. Verse 8, it says, For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. In other words, you're putting your treasures where they belong, in heaven. Since Thomas, for the present life and also for the life to come, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Full acceptance. So we are mortifying the fleshly deeds, and we're exercising ourselves for the godly deeds. You see, God is in you to work and to will his good pleasure, yes. But you have to be doing something about it. You just don't sit on your couch waiting for it to happen. You have to do something about it. John Owen, going back to John Owen, said this, Exercise and success in mortification are the two main cherishers of grace in the heart. In other words, by the exercise and uh, uh, trying to mortify those sins... God gives you more grace, and it gives you more grace, and it gives you more grace. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have a trial or a temptation, as we talked about last week. They're going to still come, 
but it's affirmation that you are growing. That's what, it, that's what it's supposed to be there, is an affirmation that you're, you're growing, or it's an affirmation that you need to continue to grow. You see, repentance is a necessary component of genuine conversion. If you're going to say that you are converted, there needs to have been a time where you repented of some sin or sins and turn from that sin. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Notice we're all over the place. That's why I wanted to use the uh, overhead, or the, the PowerPoint. I put it together, obviously, for another class at some point. That's okay. That's the way I look at it. Nothing is done by mistake. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And it says there, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. When you make this repentance about your sin, you do it without regret. I, I've never turned back. There's no, no, no time I've ever said, you know what, this isn't worth it. This trying to walk with God isn't worth it. No, no. Without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And you know, as a biblical counselor, I've had those people who have repented only because they got caught. They have repented because they really feel bad about their sin. And I tell the counseling class this one situation, a guy in my office, I'm still over there in the chapel, and he's crying his eyes out. I mean, he's bawling about his sin of drug use and alcohol and all of this kind of stuff. And, oh, you know, we had just caught him stealing from his in-laws, okay? All of this kind of stuff. Took the furniture off the back porch and started selling it. I mean, how low do you get? And he's crying in the office and, you know, I'm thinking, okay, maybe I can give him a few bucks and help him. No, I'm not going to give him because he's a drug user. But he leaves my office and I was in the chapel and I step out of my office after a few minutes taking care of some things. And I look and I see him parked out there on Roscoe Boulevard. And he's got a bowl of crack cocaine that he's sucking on. And I look at him and I said, I mean, it, what in the world are you doing? Those tears from 10 seconds ago, 10 minutes ago, whatever it was, were not real. And you've been there too. I've had my kids, when I've corrected them, cry a little bit. Sometimes not because they were repentant, but because they wanted to get out of it. And that's what he was doing. Unsaved people must, must turn from sin. Unsaved people must sin. That's the state of a self-rule. You do whatever you want to do because you want to do it. Uh, you have become your Lord and your Master. You tell yourself when you want to do it and and how you want to do it. And it doesn't matter what the rest of the world says. You're going to do it. I got to tell you, you deal with people like I deal with people like that all the time. And you probably have in your own home. Romans 10.9. I love this. It says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. In other words, you make him master and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You know, those, that sounds very simple. All I've got to do is believe. I mean, I can go to a lot of Christian churches. There's a lot of Southern Baptist churches. and Oh yeah, I believe that Jesus did that. But does that make them saved? Does that make them saved? Where is the fruit? How are they in harmony with God now? 
Are they walking with him? You see, repentance means a continually necessary act of conversion on your part, in a sense, where you continue to follow after him. You you know, when I first came to Grace Church back in 1982, I I heard some folks speaking about backslidden. I, I couldn't understand, what is backslidden? You know, they're, they're born into a Christian family. They grew up and, you know, at age six, they gave their life to Christ, but they're backslidden. And this lady came up to me once after I, I taught at a conference, and she says, yeah, my brother's backslidden. I said, well, what does that mean? Can you please explain it to me? Well, he, he could tell you the color of the tie that the pastor was wearing when the pastor led him to Christ. I said, Really? repentance of that sin you turn away from it and so all human repentance has reference to turning from the state or the occurrence of sin and turning to God for forgiveness and his renewal giving you the grace of God giving you the the Holy Spirit so that you can do that scripture often alludes to a false repentance which I was talking about before you can see that in Matthew chapter 3 First words out of Jesus' mouth, I think it's in Mark, but we're not going to go to Mark. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 3. And Matthew chapter 3, um, and we see in verse 7 and 8, it says, But when he saw the, uh, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are religious people, folks. These are the religious people of the day. The Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, this is what Jesus bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. People come to me sometimes and say, Pastor, I don't know if I'm saved. How am I supposed to tell them whether they're saved or not? I, I said it would be so much easier if we had a, a stamp on the back and had a big E on it that says elect. We don't have that. I said, but we do have this. Where is your life? How are you bearing fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Where are those nine fruits showing up in your life? Or do we go to the deeds of the flesh that are there in that Galatians passage? And and there's all of these other things, dissension and, and all of this other debauchery that's there. Where is it? You make that assessment. I can't. I can't. So, I'd like to put it in these terms. Let's look at the elements, the effects, and the examples of repentance. The effects, I mean the elements, the effects, and the examples of repentance. So that we can practice these things, we can use these things as a a barometer of where we are with Christ. The first is the elements of true repentance. The elements of true repentance start with comprehending. Comprehending. The comprehending is to understand, and then what do I do to change my mind about this thing? I love what Pastor John used to say years ago. He says, I walk by the donut table just to say, no, I'm in charge. (laughs) Yeah, just the donut table is going to be here next Sunday. Okay, so you walk by and you go, no, I'll I'll just have some coffee. You see, we need to understand the the truth relevant to our sin and our Savior before we can even repent, in a sense. 
The Greek word most often translated repentance is the word metanoia. And I don't want to clog you up with the Greek words and all. It denotes a change of mind. It denotes a change of mind, a completely change of mind. Repentance is changing one's mind to conform to God's standard. To God's standard. It is important to understand that mere sorrow has nothing to do with it. Deep remorse even doesn't have anything to do with it. You see, that deep remorse doesn't constitute genuine repentance unless it is accompanied by a sincere decision to forsake sin. Now, what would that be for somebody who's using those drugs? Find a, a rehab place. Find a place where you can go and take care of that. Or actually be genuine in your confession and you work with the man that's trying to help you. I eventually called him because... I said to him, you know, we're going to do church discipline on you. He was a member of Grace Church. And he'd repent, and then he'd, we did that for months. I said, okay, the elders have given me permission that if you don't do what I say at this level, we're going to go to, repent, uh, we're going to, go to church discipline. I said, you need to go in a rehab center. Do I believe that that's the answer? No, I believe Jesus Christ is the answer. But the rehab center was a Christian rehab center, which we don't have, unfortunately, anymore. Not one that we recommend. But just to have sorrow? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, there's a character from the Old Testament who had lots of sorrow. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. And it says that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. I, you read, I read that story of Esau and I go, wait a minute, you've given everything in the right family, all of these kinds of things, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. He sold it to his brother. Turkey. <laughs> Verse 17, it says, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he, w- he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance though he sought it with tears. Here he is crying for it, and it's not real. It's not real. So you can have those things. So we first have one of the elements is comprehending. The second one is confessing. The second element there is confessing. Again, change of mind. When you are confessing, do you know what you're doing? When you say um, to God, uh, I, I'm sorry that I stole the, from this bank and I shouldn't have done it. What you're doing is you're agreeing with him that the law of God is in place and you're not supposed to steal. You go to Exodus and it says if you steal a, a, a lamb, you're supposed to give one back. You kill somebody, you're supposed to be killed. You know, it's a lex talionis that you, you follow those kinds of things. There's an inward confession that happens. Inward confession that you are saying the same thing as God. You're agreeing with God about the nastiness of your sin, the the filthiness of your sin. And so we must acknowledge to God the fact of our sin and agree with God about the nature of our sin. Um, We know 1 John 1, 8 and 9, that if you confess your sin, He is faithful to forgive you of your sin. Can I say, folks, and plead with you even, Don't take that for granted. 
Don't take that for granted. You know, on Monday I, I did this and I did it again on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, maybe even Monday evening, maybe Tuesday. You, you keep doing it over and over and over again. Don't take that for granted. God is willing to forgive you. But folks, if you keep going back and back and back, it's like a pig going back to the slop. It's no different. Proverbs 28.13 says this, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper. You know, I, I taught that to my children. I said, please tell me before I find out what you've done wrong. Very helpful. You get grace automatically. You get grace automatically. But if I have to go and discover it, eh, then your mom's going to make you me uh, spank you. Even though I don't want to. <laughs> And then he goes on there, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. If you confess them and you forsake them, God will give you compassion. I don't know about you, but I can use it. I can use it. Thank you, Lord. I need it. Confession, then, is a sign of repentance. The one who confesses is facing the fact of a sin, and he's trying to work through it, whatever that may be. He's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to deny it. And I've had folks come to me and confess sin that I would never have known about, and they want to have help confessing it to someone else that they had no idea about it. And I go, that's the best kind. That person that they've sinned against that didn't know about it, but they're confessing it to them. So true repentance happens there. The third um, element is choosing. Choosing. You have comprehending, you have confession, and now you have choosing. It's a change of life. It's a change of life. Years ago, I had this uh, homosexual young man who came to me for counsel. And I was counseling with him and uh, gave him the counsel, and, and he loved it, he accepted it, he, he wanted it. Uh, and then I asked him at some point, I said, uh, you know, tell me, where do you work? And he told me where he worked. I said, you can't work there anymore. Well, why would I do that? Well, he happened to work in a men's clothing store. And he worked in a men's clothing store down on Santa Monica Boulevard in Boys Town, which I happen to know, okay, because of um, other people that I've worked with. He's down there where all the homosexuals are. So they're going to come into the to the store, and you're going to be able to keep yourself from that? No, you got to get out of there. I said, there's a, uh, an opening in, in a McDonald's up in Santa Clarita. That's where you need to go. He said, no. And he left the church. His confession was not real. His repentance was not real. He wanted to be there just in case, you know? That's what I said to him. That's all you're doing. You're just postponing maybe your sin, but that's all you're doing. You're not really turning from it. So it's choosing. It's a change of life. Now the next is we have elements and then we have effects of true repentance. Repentance itself is an inward turning. It's something that happens on the inside. It takes place in your heart and in your mind. Those elements that uh, control your thinking, your desires, your motives, all of those kinds of things. Inevitably, 
it leads to change in other areas of a person's life. You begin to see it. My counselors, the folks that are doing counseling for me, and I talked to one on, on Wednesday, he is absolutely out of the ceiling seeing the change in this person's life. You can see it. And he doesn't see him just in the counseling room. He's in his Bible study. He's with him on Wednesday evening in, in the men's group. He just loves it. That's an actual change. You can see it. That's what should be happening. But false repentance will never bring forgiveness. What are some of the things that you need to see in an, an effect of true repentance? Number one is restitution. Restitution. Trying to make things right. That's what the word there means. It means to set things right. The repentant sinner must fulfill any obligations to the offended party. If you stole a cow, you need to bring back a cow with milk. You you need to restore whatever it is that you've taken. Now, there are some situations where that's almost impossible. But that's what you need to do. It's that outward confession, and that's the willingness to accept the consequences Like somebody came to me once and said, uh, Pastor, I committed a crime in New Jersey. And uh, he said, what do I do with that? I said, well, how serious is it? He said, well, it's not too bad. It's just that if I go back to New Jersey and get caught, I'm going to be brought before a judge. I said, why don't you do this? Go to New Jersey and go right to the judge and say, I did this 20 years ago. And he did. I don't he listened to me. He went before the judge. You know what the judge said? Not guilty. And he wrote it off of his record. He said, and, and the guy looked at me and said, why are you doing that? And he said, because I've never had anyone do that before. <laughs> well, you know who you go before? You go before God Almighty. And you're asking him for forgiveness. And he sits there and he goes, forgiven. Doesn't hold it against you. Uh, praise God, he doesn't. So we have the first, which is restitution. Look at the proverb, uh, I'm sorry, Psalms 51. Psalms 51. And folks, if I don't get to the questions that were sent to me, I'll write the answers to you. Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. This is David's confession of sin. Um, sin with Bathsheba, sin with, against Uriah. Do you notice he doesn't? Confess the sin to Bathsheba or to anyone else, but only to God. But in, in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4, it says, For I know my transgressions. He knew them. And my sin is ever before me. It's dominating his mind. If you were new, read the history, he for 11 months was in this funk. That's why when people come in and say they're depressed, okay, what, when did it start? Because there may be something way back when that brought him to that. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Completely blameless. He could give me a consequence, give you a consequence for your sin. Restitution. Reconciliation. This is a very touchy, difficult, I think almost case-by-case situation that you have to talk through. This is going to give you principles. That's what I want to give. When there's a broken relationship, when there's a broken relationship, true repentance is going to transform the conflict 
into a relationship. It may not picture the relationship that you had before. Please understand that. It does not necessarily have to picture that relationship that you had before. It may in some cases be better. It may in some cases be terrible. In some cases it's basically the same. But it needs to be, and this is what it has to happen, is a peaceful and edifying friendship. A peaceful and edifying friendship. Now, can you be at peace with an unbeliever who continues to sin against you? Probably not. You know, they come into your uh, house and, and they destroy your furniture and then they leave and they come back and they say, please forgive me. Well, how many times are you going to let them in there? You know, it's like Jay Adams, what he said is that you duck when that person comes back. But those are the kinds of things. But this is one thing that, that the reconciliation that's necessary. Matthew chapter 5, why don't you turn there? Matthew chapter 5, we uh, looked at this many weeks ago. I don't exactly remember when, but Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. It says, if therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar. Matter of fact, I said this last week. When you're going down to receive communion, make sure that you've made uh, everything right between you and God. And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. The Jewish way of worship was to bring an offering for us. It's communion. You, You go there, you stop and go, wait a minute, I need to take care of this issue. I've got something against my brother. I've got something against my sister. I need to make sure that relationship is no longer broken. As it says in Romans 12, 18, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And so people always ask me, well, my dad, I, he's dead. Well, you, you can't obviously be at peace with him. You, he's, he's gone. You, you've got somebody who um, uh, is a criminal. And I had this guy who's, he said, if I go speak to this person, they will actually murder me. I said, well, then write him an email. What, what, but you can still do it. There is a way of doing it. Sending a letter, all of that kind of stuff. You, you can do it to some degree. Now, that may not bring peace, but it's at least you recognizing where you sinned against that person. We have restitution, reconciliation, and regret. Regret, that's the change of heart. True repentance may not always be accompanied by emotions, I, it's nice to see the emotion and, and I understand the emotion, but that may or may not corroborate the evidences of a, of a, a changed heart. I, I can tell you what does is when you see a, a life completely changed. That tells me there's a changed heart. Um, Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42, and they, you don't need to turn there, but verse 6, you can just jot it down. Job chapter 42, verse 6 says, Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. After he's having his tete-a-tete with God, he's going back and forth, you know, you do this, you do this, and, and he's listening to his bad counselors, okay? He just, who am I? Eventually he, he, he says, he puts his hands over his mouth because he has nothing to say to God. There's a regret So all of that, and now we're at what is forgiveness. It's taken a little while. 
The primary Greek word for forgive is epiphemi, and it means to send away or to release. Now remember those words, to send away or to release. When, In other words, when you ask for forgiveness from God, he has sent your sins as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he sent them. And now, folks, those never join. It's an impossibility to join completely. That's uh, Psalm 103, verse 11 or 12. It's right in there. So in reference to your sin, it means to pardon. But forgiveness has also rightly been described as a promise. So it's, it's not just a pardon, but it's also a promise. You see, God promises you something when he forgives you. He promises you something. Isaiah 43.25 says, I, and this is God speaking, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I love that. I like to stop there. God forgives me, not for me, but for him. Why does he do that? Because he's receiving glory from the angels. Why did you forgive Bill Shannon again? And they they give him praise. I even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And then the last part is, and I will not remember your sins anymore. I, I think about that. Wait a minute. He knows the beginning from the end, the Alpha, the Omega. He knows every single little thing that's happening at every single second in this world and he's not going to remember my sin in other words he's choosing not to remember it because that sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ that sin has been covered by the Jesus Christ so we have two different kinds of forgiveness we have God's forgiveness we're going to call that um Judicial forgiveness. As the judge, he sits in heaven and he forgives us over and over and over and over again. That's what he does. He forgives us. And we're going to get to the um, personal forgiveness. In other words, the, the parental forgiveness in a few minutes. But I just want to read this. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 13 and 15, 14, it says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your transgressions. I, I don't know, folks. I, I was 30-something when he saved me. 30-something. There was 30-something years of sin. I mean, debauched sin, whatever it was. But he still saved the other side of it too. He still covered the other side of it. Verse 13, And you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's been dealt with. Praise God. And, and you should think the same thing. Praise God. Uh, just jot down Romans 4, 7, and 8. That's the forgiveness that we have, the judicial forgiveness we get from God. Now, there's forgiveness after salvation. And um, I call it 
others call it, I, don't, I think I probably stole that idea from others, is parental forgiveness. See, God is now my father. Remember, we pray, we were looking at the prayer, our father who art in heaven. He's my father. He's your father. And so that's parental forgiveness. And I look at it this way. We are under that parental forgiveness. I need to forgive others. Ephesians 4.32 As God in Christ Jesus has forgiven me. God's forgiven me an incredible debt. Who am I to hold this little snot-nosed person that's doing something against me? I don't really care. Right? I mean, think about it, folks. It's like why would you want to do that? You were forgiven all of this and they've just done this? Not only is it Ephesians 4, uh, 20, I'm sorry, Isaiah 43, 25, but it's Jeremiah 31, 34. It says this, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So when you forgive somebody who sinned against you, you are saying, I pardon them. Okay? You're saying that not only do I pardon them, pardon them, but I'm promising not to remember it again. How about the person who keeps sinning against you the same way over and over and over again? Well, first of all, maybe they're not a believer. I mean, I, I, every situation is different. But you need to remember this. I remind myself that I need to forgive them. I'm not going to mention it to somebody else. Do you know what this person did to me? Do you know? I mean, I don't need to sin another sin, which is called gossip. Now talking about that person and what they did. No. I don't need to mention it to anyone else. And I'm not going to allow my mind to dwell on it. I just let it go. Let it go. See, we are commanded to forgive. We're not told, you know, well, you can forgive if you feel like it. It's nothing about feelings, folks. It's about a promise, about a pardon. The same kind of pardon you received from God. And he did not have to pardon you. Now, this was one of those questions, and I think I'm answering it here. Whom should we forgive? Whom should we forgive? Do you know... There's a little bit of a contradiction in the Bible. No, Bill. It's two different ways of looking at it. Do I forgive everybody of their sins? Do do I just let it go? Well, Luke chapter 17. Why don't you turn there? Luke 17. Luke 17 says this, be on your guard if your brother, and let's put your sister in there too. I think that's happened once since 1902. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. What is Jesus teaching? And he's teaching the apostles here that you need to forgive over and over and over and over again. Now, in verse 5, which I'm not going to look at necessarily, but in verse 5, the apostles say, we need more faith. They couldn't believe it. 
What's the next part of that? Then Jesus says, well, you're just doing what I told you to do. You forgive. By the way, in the Mark passage, I think it is a Luke passage, it's 70 times 7. So 490 times. And by the way, that's in one day. Over and over. So there it says, rebuke those who what? Seek it. Rebuke those who sin, but then who seek forgiveness, you forgive them. There's no, there's, by the way, in the Greek, there's no comma there. I know in the English it does have that. Now there's another passage. Turn to Mark chapter 11, verse 25. In Mark eleven twenty-five, it says this, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. Isn't that what you did in Matthew chapter 6? Forgive us our debts as we forgive others' debts. Well, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who uh, also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. So you forgive everybody. Can, can I say there isn't a contradiction here? I wanted to get you all excited and you didn't get excited about it. There isn't a, 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 a contradiction here. There's no problem here with the, the way it's said. There's no discrepancy. The best way to describe this is a distinction between a transaction of forgiveness and an attitude of forgiveness. You can only have the transaction when somebody asks you. I was asked that recently. I I want to forgive my mom for doing this to me, some young lady. I said, has she asked for it? No. Well, you can in your heart when she comes to you and seeks forgiveness. You can tell her. But you, you, you can't really go through that transaction until that happens. I mean, if you want to confront her, I mean, is she a believer? No, she's not a believer. Well, then you, how can you forgive her? It's, it's up to God. Pray for her soul. That's what you need to do. You need to have the attitude of, of love, a, a willingness to forgive. And that, what does that mean? That means that I'm never, ever going to be angry at them, bitter at them, resent them, or have some kind of an ill will against them. But in my heart, if they come to me and seek forgiveness, I will forgive them. And I have done that with counselees going back to people that have sinned against them, whether it be email or a letter or a phone call, whatever it is, and they've sought out forgiveness in one case where a young lady hadn't spoken to her dad in 35 years. And she got back to him and found out that he had become a believer. I mean, we never know what God's going to do. Never know what God's going to do. See, we need to have a desire always to be reconciled. That's a necessity on the, on the part of a Christian. I want to be reconciled to whoever those who are or my enemy or whatever. I want to be reconciled to them. Psalm 86.5 says this, don't turn there. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. He's always ready to forgive. That's why it's so important that you go to him and seek forgiveness. Because he's going to give it to you over and over and over. Talk about the transaction. There needs to be that willingness to go to the other person and seek it. And got a bunch of people out in the hallway. So I'll seek forgiveness after we get finished. But folks, this is important. And those who wrote me emails, um, I will try to get back to you with the answers that I have here. 
we had some great questions. Um, what about the person you're living with was one question. And they continue to sin against you. You know, you want them to throw their dirty socks in the hamper and they don't do it. Or pick up their clothes or, you know, not leave a mess and they continue to do it. How, how do you do that? Well, there's one particular verse that I like to use. is First Peter 4.8, let love cover a multitude of sins. Now, it's when the covers are thrown off that you may have to go to that person and speak to them. What do I mean by that? Is that it's become so much in your heart that you need to go and speak to them about that and seek uh, some kind of help there. Folks, I've got a little bit more time. Uh, I don't. Uh, Next time we may even have all of the workings going on. But have a great day. I'm going to close in prayer. Father, thank you for today. What a beautiful, beautiful day here in Southern California. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for your grace in our lives, that you have reconciled us to yourself, that you have sent your son to pay the price. What an incredible price it was uh, to reconcile us to you. May this day be another beautiful day for each of us as we grow in Christ. In your name, amen.